0: In today's tech-driven economy, it seems like it can be hard to justify the value of a traditional liberal arts education. But given the speed at which AI-driven advancements are taking over traditional jobs and even technical ones, perhaps a better understanding of humans and their cultures is exactly what we need more of. Because being product-driven really means people-driven. And we're betting few people understand the human experience better than the author of Sensemaking co-founder of Red Associates, Christian Madsbier. In this episode, Aaron and Eli chat with Christian about using tools from human and social sciences to inform business decisions. Christian's expertise helps clarify the methods a lot of fast-moving companies botch, like gathering proper ethnographic research and the hazards of conducting focus groups. Together, they also dig into the pros of a liberal arts education and how it helps foster the crucial skill of critical thinking. So put on your thinking cap and enjoy this interview with Christian Madsburg. And thanks for listening.
1: Christian Madsburg senior partner at Red Associates. Thank you so much for being on the Design Better podcast.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: So I have to say before we get started, um, the Moment of Clarity is is a really important book to me. Um, I founded the, the research team at at Mailchimp, and um, research was an important part of the product design process. And what you articulated in that book, um, it really it, it's a it, there's a lot of important stuff in there, and we want to dive into that in more detail. But um, before we we do that, can we start just uh, with with an overview of what Red Associates does?
2: Right. Thank you for that. I mean, it's nice to have a reader. Um, so the Red Associates is a, is a consultancy, uh, like any other consultancy. But I think the methods we use are not um, very mainstream. Um, we are interested in how people, or how we humans experience different phenomena in the world, how we experience the world, how we find our way around in it. So we study how people use things, buy things, um, and experience things uh, in the world. And we do that with tools from the human sciences or from the social sciences and parts of the humanities, where we try to understand what's it like to be someone else experiencing you know being a customer of a bank or owning a vehicle or um, uh, uh, trying to um, figure out what to do with your education and so on like different kinds of experiences in the world that are studied and taken quite seriously um, by the teams we have and we use this to advise on sort of big decisions that companies can make on what to make, how to market it, how to sell things, how to, um, think about, um, customers or consumers or, um, collaborators and so on. So it's all based on human sciences and all based on how people experience phenomena in the world.
1: Um, on the red associates website, there is a, a listing of your offerings. And one of them caught my attention complexity reduction. What is that and how do you do that? Right.
2: So um, the design thinking world have made um, the phrase unmet needs very popular in the past 20 years. So what research should do is to find the unmet, unarticulated needs of people. And then we should make more things for that. And I think that's certainly half of the picture. But the other half is, how about the overmet needs? How about all the things we've made, whether that's features in a car or SKUs or um, features on a piece of software, that nobody gives a damn about? So ethnography is, in one hand, a tool for innovation but I find it as rewarding to reduce things, to take out things that, based on the research, clearly isn't helpful for anyone and nobody cares about. So for instance, we work for an automotive company, as you can probably hear from my examples, and we could see that American users of vehicles, so not power users, but just normal everyday users, use on average 20% of the features that are in the car. right? So we have created a very complicated system of expensive technology that drives up the cost for people and that makes it very hard to engage with the vehicle in a helpful way uh, without knowing that that wasn't helpful at all. Um, so complexity reduction is to use anthropology or social research to take out things, to cut things that just isn't helpful. Um, And there's nowhere where that is more helpful than in the marketing space, where um, companies spend so much vulgar amounts of money on things that nobody gives a damn about, but that Advertising agencies have convinced them to do for some reason, yet it's obvious from looking at how people engage with it that nobody cares. Um, And if you look at, you know, if you look at Word, uh, you know, Microsoft Word, we would on average use 4% of the features, uh, you know, and most of them are just confusing us. So I think the most brutal cost reduction tool in the world really is anthropology. It's not. McKinsey-like benchmarking. It is looking at people and what's relevant for them and taking out everything that isn't relevant so that we can lower cost, make things simpler and um, relevant
1: for people. So you've got an interesting background. You studied political science, philosophy, um, cultural studies. Uh, it's pretty diverse uh, background that, that beautifully dovetails into what you've just described, which um, Plays a really important role in a lot of businesses, certainly. Um, but can you talk a bit? How do you how do you jump from this background into founding a company like Red Associates? Um, what's the origin story of the company? Right. So
2: when I I thought I always thought I would be a scholar. I always thought I would be a professor. Um, and I like books. I'm a total nerd. Um, and uh, So I thought that would be the way, until I went to the university and I found how miserable people are and how horrible it is to be um, working in a university and how much they fight over little things and so on. And and also how bad they dress. I mean, it's just horrible to look at. So I was just, uh, in general, I wasn't very happy about my university experience. Um, And it's not that I didn't like topics. I loved the topics. It was just more the whole sort of academic life. And then after that, I thought, okay, so what do I do now? Um, And um, for some reason, consulting or advising based on some of the things I was interested in felt as if it was available to me. It felt like I could could maybe help here. Um, And I thought some of the theories that I was interested in and some of the ways of looking at people and culture felt just more sophisticated than what a standard MBA person would use or what I saw being used in companies and then I said I got one client and then I got another one and then the second one referred the third one and and here I am so it was sort of never a It was never a plan or a strategy or anything like that. It was more um, following what felt meaningful and trying to do good work and hoping that if I did good work, I would be rewarded for that. Um, And then sort of a series of lucky incidents, like we'd started working with Lego and then that case was inspiring Adidas to call us. And then somebody from Adidas went to work for Coke, and then somebody from Coke went to work for, you know, and so on. And it's just um, been like that all along, that sort of people have been very um, generous in terms of inviting us in to, and give us really interesting questions to to deal with. Um, uh, The company Red Associates, which is sort of the third iteration of that company. So one was merged into something else, and another one I sold, and so on. But Red Associates was the R and D function in a big design firm, so the biggest design firm in the, in Northern Europe. Um, and um, the R and D function, me and and a couple of my partners that are now still partners here, bought out of that group, and the R and D um, name sort of was used a little bit. And and we worked with with people from Samsung, so from from Seoul, korea and they didn't really know how to say r and d so they started calling it red and then we thought okay let's call it red and that was like 12 years ago so it's um it's sort of a a, a series of happy accidents and and i guess a lot of work that that le- that led to here uh, and the origin isn't one of clarity and strategy it's one of just stumbling into things and trying to do the best you can in terms of dealing with the things that people throw at you.
3: Christian, you you mentioned Lego as as one of your first clients. And in the the moment of clarity, you talk about Lego's turnaround and um, some of the designers there being hamstrung by by focus groups. In fact, one of the strategists called them a a false environment. Could you speak a little bit more about the, the dangers of focus groups?
2: right so it's not just focus groups it's any um it's any research technique that takes for granted that people can reflect on their own experience at all and that takes people out of their natural context and natural environment and forces them to reflect on things that they wouldn't normally reflect on so If you were invited into a focus group about um, ready-to-drink tea or um, SUV vehicles, you would sit in that room, which isn't the normal place for you to sit, and talk to people you would not otherwise have talked to, thinking about things that you wouldn't otherwise have thought about, and probably coming up with things to say that sounds smart or um, reasonable in the moment, but isn't in any way reflecting what you would actually do in the situation. Um, And the same, so that happens in focus groups, but it also happens in um, surveys. So if you ask people, um, you know, 85 questions or 26 questions online about what they think about this and that and the other, most of those questions refer to things that are below the threshold of awareness and where people are not um, able to answer that with any precision or any sort of, um, quality because they're taken out of their natural environment and that's a problem that the that the the original founders of the survey and the focus group so the sur- surveys was sort of starting up in in the late um the late 1900 and particularly Emile Durkheim, the french um sociologist sort of talked about the deep theoretical problem that that Surveys have because people would answer the wrong things uh, to him if if for whatever he asked them, and also uh, Merton, who's the an American sociologist from Chicago that invented the focus group um, around just after the war, also warned um, people from using it for the wrong things. And I think right now the industry, um, sort of the businesses of the world. Are spending between 30 and 40 billion dollars a year on asking people what they think about things, even though the founders themselves of those techniques warned them against doing it, uh, because it's outside of the context of people, and they're asking people to reflect on things that they wouldn't otherwise have, you know, reflected on. Um, and uh, that's why we make so many mistakes in, this, in, in the business world. That's why most products fail because they're based on the wrong set of techniques to understand people.
1: Now, you know, for a business to be successful, for a product to be successful, a key there is uh, a deep understanding of the customer, a connection to the customer. Um, and, and it sounds like that's what you're advocating for. What are, how do we balance, though, um, the need to... Um, Move quickly in competitive markets. How do we dive in or make that connection to the customer? Um, if uh, you know, we have to be Im- immersed in uh, that experience all the time. Can we do that in a way that where there's speed as well?
2: Um, that depends on what you mean by speed. Um, I think. I mean, there. I think there are three types of competitiveness. And one of them is about understanding consumers and connecting better to consumers than others. Another one is just being making the same thing, but doing it cheaper. So price. And another one is product performance. So making a better chipset or making a better screen or making a better, I don't know, sandwich. You don't have to um, understand your consumers if your product is just superior technologically or technically. Uh, but, but most products are pretty much the same as every other product on the market, are very close by, and that leads us to a situation where you need to understand customers. Um, and I think that's an ongoing task that needs to happen in every company. So speed is one, you know, some things can be done fast and some things can be done slow, but it's it's an ongoing task uh, if you run General Motors to understand how people use and enjoy or buy or sell uh, uh, vehicles around the world. Uh, and that's not a f- a question of fast and slow. It's a question of ongoing. Um, so, so that's one. The other thing is that you can move very fast if you know something about your market. Uh, and uh, I think speed is something you get from understanding. And, um, But the problem with people is that you can't just uh, wrestle questions out of them super fast. You have to do it in the pace that is normal for them or for us, which means that you need to get down to the pace of uh, people. And that means you have to to observe them and you have to track them and you have to understand what's going on in their life. And there's a limit to how much you can speed that up. But I think once you understand it, you can speed up other processes. and I think the development process of products is much faster if you know what you're developing and you know how it would fit into the lives of people. Um, so I'm not, a, I'm not against speed. I just think you need the appropriate tempo of sometimes being fast and sometimes being slow and applying the techniques that's reasonable in the situation. What I'm not for is forcing speed on something um, because you just get a crappy result um, and I, I, I don't like crappy results.
3: Um, hmm. uh, related to this question around speed, uh, in your book, you talk about Silicon Valley thinking and, and some of the problems that can create for companies. And there's this idea in Silicon Valley that's sort of move fast and break things. But could could you explain a little bit about what's wrong with the way that Silicon Valley works today?
2: Right. So I, I have a lot of, um, Good things to say about Silicon Valley um, development. So you know, agile and the sort of lean ways of developing software, I'm all for. But I, th- but I think, um, up before you do anything and start making and breaking things, it's nice and helpful to understand who are you doing this for. And if you look at Silicon Valley, they have in the past 20 years built a lot of things for people like themselves, right? So 28-year-olds with an engineering background and um, money in their pocket have had solutions to every single project in the world, every single problem in the world that they could, might imagine so they can be moved around and get their pizzas uh, quick and all kinds of things. Uh, but I think if you want to make things for people in West Africa or in Western China or in South Korea, you got to understand what it's like to be there. Um, and if you want to understand, if you want to make software for people that live a different or cars for a different that live a different life than your own, understanding it is helpful, and you make better decisions when you do that. So that's. So I think if you integrate into the Silicon Valley model, and an upfront um, human understanding um, part where um, you guide uh, a very fast development process based on that rather than assuming that everybody wants the same thing that you want. Um, and I think one of the reasons if you look at some like a company like Google that, that's the um, poster child of, of you know, Silicon Valley thinking or Facebook even, It's been a while since really cool things came out that wasn't about their fundamental innovation. Um, So in Google, it's about selling ads and searching. And they have, you know, they're a spectacular, unsuccessful innovation company, if you think about it, in terms of how much money they spend and how little cool stuff comes out of it, how many things they fail and how spectacularly they fail. Um, And the same with, with Facebook, you know, they constantly develop things, but it's little things. And um, there's a lot of big brains working on little things in Silicon Valley. And I think they should work on bigger things, and they should do that based on understanding of the human environment in which they're placing their products. So I think a combination of the engineering skill and capability of Silicon Valley with a humanities-focused um effort to understand people and figure out the ethics and the aesthetics and the needs and the you know, life of people around them would be a very spectacular uh, combination. I think that's the, that would be the iteration of the Silicon Valley version. I think it'll happen by itself. And I think what's happening also for us now in red is that companies that were very critical of us a while ago, like the two giants I talked about before, start calling us because they've had too many failures.
1: In your, uh, in your book, Sense Making, you talk about understanding the world of, of the customer in a way that I've not heard uh, anyone else really describe it. You talk about this very deep um, investment in or, uh, you, you know, like getting lost in a culture, understanding poetry, understanding uh, the language, understanding food and ritual. Um, it's beyond just watching, you know, what what is commonly referred to in in the Silicon Valley world as ethnographic research. Of I'm watching people do work with the thing that I've I've made. Uh, you're talking about proper ethnographic research and going very deep. Can Can you talk about how you do that, or how we might do that more effectively in the product design world?
2: Right. Yeah. So, um, and this is this is very important to me. This, your question. Um, what happened, I mean, it used to be that design was done by um, self-proclaimed artists and geniuses in neat um, um, ateliers in Paris or London or New York. um, And they would then show the world their vision of whatever product they were working on. And then a series of um, Silicon Valley companies and also uh, Silicon Valley-based design firms imported um, a light version of ethnography from the social sciences. I think this happened in the in the 80s, late 70s, 80s. Um, Xerox Park was one, IDEO another, FROG another. Um, and they started saying, what about designing for the people using the product? Um, and they, what they did was that they sent out... Um, designers to be inspired by people um, using the product that they have. And that is certainly um, better than having Philip Stock sitting, um, uh, making uh, the same aesthetics in a thousand different products and being arrogant about it. I think there's a, there's a fundamental humility to that approach. Uh, and that's what Silicon Valley has done since then. Uh, what I'm saying is there is a, an advanced version of that. There is a more sophisticated version of that, that the, the science and the craft that, that was inspired by, so the human sciences and real ethnography, real cultural understanding, is a several hundred year old um, academic practice that is really neat and um, can help get a way deeper understanding of the matter at hand where you look at uh, the object you're designing or the software you're designing or the service you're designing in the context of what that is so if you study tea you understand what is tea consumed, how is tea consumed what are they consumed with uh, under what circumstances how is it made what is it what does it mean for people is it different from people in china than people in france and so on and by understanding the full phenomenon, you can see much more than if you just look at, you know, the, the the exact product you're looking at. So, quite often, you know, I've been out with Silicon Valley engineers and and look and doing sort of ethnographic practices with them, and the kind of questions they have are are fun because they sort of show the difference. And they would ask questions to people like, "So, would you like this in a different form factor?" You know, stuff like that. So very, very um, product focused and very feature focused and very design focused. And, and I think designers are not the best ethnographers. Um, I think ethnographers are the best ethnographers. And people with a background in those sciences have a theoretical framework. They have tools and skills and, you know, um, research techniques that are uh, rooted in hundreds of years of work. And we should use them. Um, and, and and that's what I'm talking about in the book is how, how to do that and how the be- the people that are best at that how, how do they do that? Because it's something you can use mean you know, in the book I have a finance guy, I have a, a, a lawyer, I have a conflict negotiator, teacher, mm-hmm. uh, you know different an architect that all use um, this broader, way of doing cultural understanding than just sort of functionality UX um, type research. And I, I don't see anything wrong with UX research. I, it's just a different thing. You know? I, and I have a problem when you call UX research real ethnography, because it isn't. It's UX research. And, and both are helpful and both are fine, but they're, but they're different.
3: Christian, so if if you go through this um, process of of this deeper, more formal ethnography, how do you, how do you go about sharing the insights gathered from that research?
2: Yeah. So the thing is, um, and this is sort of a critique of the social sciences is that people in the social sciences have been quite insular for many years. Um, and if you see papers at an anthropology conference, they're largely impossible to read. I mean, it's really hard to understand what they're saying. They have their own jargon. They have their own um, language, really, and their own words. And um, that's not helpful in a business context. Uh, so what you need to do, as a soci- if you are a social scientist, is to use your skills that you use for understanding customers to also understand the people you're talking to in a company situation. What's the language that they use? What's the frameworks that they use? What's the assumptions they have when they say um, whatever they think about something? And use the same sort of skill sets to communicate. So what you need to do is you need two filters, right? You need one filter that's towards the world of the customer or the world of users, a world of people on one hand, but also a filter towards the company and how a company talks about itself. And a lot of misunderstandings happen when you do one or the other, right? When you only do maybe very advanced and very high quality uh, research um, about culture, but then fail to communicate it in a way where people get it. Um, So what we do is that we use the same techniques for understanding, you know, car owners to understand the Ford Motor Company um, and understand how they think about things and how processes work and how what we say might fit into that and what it would challenge and and, and, and what you can't challenge um, and so on. Because if you don't understand that, you can end up saying things that are really naive. And they might be true from a people perspective and from a culture perspective, but they're not true from a cost perspective or from a investment perspective or something like that. Um, so I would say... How do you do that? Well, you, you use ethnography tools to understand, the, in our case, the client or the company that you work for and the dynamics in the company. And you organize your communication around that. Um, otherwise, you end up being sort of snarky and arrogant and write very long sentences, but not very effective.
1: So you talk about, in sense-making, the idea of third knowledge. It's almost like uh, a gut instinct, which is uh, a very interesting idea to bring up and to remind people about in an age where uh, we have loads of data that feels very, it feels like a security blanket, that it's empirical and it gives us a sense of certainty. Um, why is this idea of the third knowledge so important now in in our work?
2: Um the working title of the book was the third knowledge, um, and the editor from the from the um, publishing house said that I was too young to say something that big, um, which is kind of um, something you just have to listen to, and I and it probably I don't know if how big it is, but it's just if to me it's intuitive that when I meet people inside companies, there seem to be two types of knowledge that they respect and that is seen as source a source of truth. And one is objective knowledge, so counting things. How many, how much, how far, uh, you know, th- those kinds of things. So how many cars did we sell last week? Uh, that's an objective thing. Or it could be in the more pseudo space, so. Seventy-eight percent of people that buy uh, SUVs want the car to be um, have a large um, um, back seat or something like that. You know th- that's also in the realm and in the language of objective knowledge. And then you have another type of knowledge that isn't of the same standing but is also accepted, and that's subjective knowledge, which is I feel this or my foot hurts. That's a kind of knowledge that they don't necessarily take as serious, but it's certainly a kind of knowledge where you can't challenge it. You can't say, no, your foot does not hurt. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that's inside me, and I can say that, that I don't like this, or I do like that. Um, and that's very much the realm that designers work in. But to me, I just thought that there isn't, you know, don't we have something in between that? A kind of knowledge that's not something we know as an objective truth, and not something that we know as a subjective truth, but that we sure for sure know. Uh, for instance, the mood of New York City right now is changing because of the weather, or this is a great party, or you s- seem sad, or... Um, the, you know, um, uh, the, the conversation, uh, you stand a little too close to me, you know, that sort of thing. So knowledge about how people interact with each other and how we um, find our way around. So, for instance, when you buy coffee in a coffee shop, you stand in line in a particular way to wait for your turn. That's not objective. And it's not subjective either. It's, some, it's a rule set that we have decided among ourselves. Or uh, in California, they drive in a different way than they do in New York City. A space between two cars in New York City is not a space between two cars in the same way as it is in California. In New York City, it's a chance to get ahead. And in California, it's just a space between two cars. So there are things about our the rules we've set the social rules and norms that we have set among ourselves that we know i know that you should drive on the right side of the road even though it's neither objective nor subjective i know how to stand in line i know how close you stand to someone i know when it's too close i know when i've been talking too long uh, i know when you're losing interest um you know and so on all those kinds of things is hard, helpful, practical knowledge, but not um, objective or subjective. And I think that should be part of... I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with objective or subjective knowledge. I'm just saying there's also a third kind of knowledge. And I sort of got on on track to this when I was reading Martin Heidegger, who's a philosopher uh, from Germany um, that um, died in the 70s, and he... um, he said that there's a difference between what is correct and what is true. So if I say um, a car is a means to get from A to B, that's certainly correct, but it's not the whole truth about cars. It's car, cars are also about freedom of mobility and all kinds of other things, and status symbols and you know all kinds of things like that. Um, or if I tell my daughter could you please put six plates on the table? Um, And she put six plates on the table and just in a stack, I would say, that is correct. You have put six plates on the table, but you've not put it around the table with forks and knives and glasses because that's what I meant about it. So um, so things can be correct without being true. And it seems to me that the things that are true to us and that we all agree are true that the music is too loud or this is a great concert or the coffee um, is good, uh, is in the realm of a third kind of knowledge that's, that you can't measure and that's not just about inner feelings and emotions inside of you. It's between us that that truth is happening. And that seems to me to be rather important if you want to uh, um, make things that work in between people, that you have a sensitivity to that. And is that gut... Well, you can study it quite systematically Um, and you can interpret what's going on between us and you can know things. Um, And um, I don't know how big an idea that is or how original it is, but I thought I would write a book about it. Um, And 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 there it is.
3: So, Christian, critical thinking seems to be also an essential skill uh, in this day and age where data is seen. Very much as gospel, um, and and the emphasis on the liberal arts education at the same time seems to be in decline. Do you see? Could you explain a little bit about why you might see critical thinking is so important, and and how it might influence companies? And also, do you have any ideas on how to, um, if not, stem the stem the turnaround on on liberal arts education? Any ideas on getting people excited about it again?
2: Well, um, that's two questions. So um, how would I get um, people excited about liberal arts? Well, I think that our ability to judge um, the validity of a statement and understand things in context is one of the things that makes us human and that machines will never be able to do so if you want to make sure you have a job in 20 years having the ability to think critically about what you hear or read or what people are telling you or what other people are making is a democratic skill and a personal skill but it's also a business skill i think it's also a competitive skill and my claim in the book is in the latest book the sense-making book is that the best, not the only place, but the best place to learn this is the liberal art or the liberal arts. And I have to say that when I meet people above VP in most companies, most sophisticated companies, it turns out that they have a liberal arts background. So they might have a an engineering major or a PhD, but it turned out that they studied French, you know, um, medieval literature um, in their undergrad. And they haven't told anybody for a while because they kind of feel weird about it. But it turns out that many of them are historians and and th- uh, studied theater or something like that. And many of the great CEOs of uh, in America and in Western Europe have that sort of um, that sort of background. And it's interesting also when you look at income, it's a, it seems to be a fact in America that, if you want a job and make a lot of money, you should study uh, science, technology, engineering, or math. Um, And I have nothing against people studying those topics if they're into it. Um, But if you look at the top 5% earners in America, people are, there are three times more people with a liberal arts background than people with a pure science, technology, engineering, or math background, which means that, when you go straight out of school, you might find it easier to find a job that's well paying if you have that sort of background. But if you are, if you want to, if you aspire to become one of the sort of big decision makers in our society, um, and particularly in the business world, having a broader, more rounded sense of culture and history and languages and so on is a very helpful thing. So it even shows up in the statistics. What is concerning for me is that if you see on the floor of the House right now, um, uh, the Republicans, the Republican Party have um, a suggestion to uh, take away the remaining of the little, the tiny, tiny amount of um, humanities funding for humanities research because they find it unhelpful and unpractical. And I think they already have passed a bill to close down the National Endowment of the Arts, which I think is so uncivilized. Um, which country, I mean, which great country doesn't have a National Endowment of the Arts? Um, and I saw that the Japanese government have closed down the publicly funded, so taxpayer-funded um, humanities degrees because they say that that's not what Japan needs right now. And you would, on the campaign trail in the last election, you would see polit- politician after politician talking down on people that studied, or, or criticizing and saying people that studied psychology or philosophy or something like that would end up, you know, serving uh, food in Czech fillet, which was, I know, Jeb Bush's example. So, so you have this sort of mood against the liberal arts as luxurious and practical and so on and impractical yet once you start looking it actually turns out to be quite quite helpful and I think the humanities gives you the hard skill of tapping into what I call the third knowledge so our shared world and our shared behavior and understand that in order to direct and guide the products we make and the services we make and the Marketing we make and this way we sell things. Um, so I just find it as a paradox that it seems to be more important than ever. It seems to be the thing that machines can't do. Yet we're trying to get rid of it. And I'm trying to start with a with a with a handful of different universities in in North America, some of the great universities in North America, uh, an institute of applied humanities to show how. Um, you could um, you can use the tools from the humanities, um, aesthetics, ethics, things from philosophy, things from history, so on, languages to um, guide practical things, and not just in the business world, but also in the in the public sector. How how to think about our schools and our uh, how to rebuild, you know, southern Florida in a way that is more resilient. Um, how to um, guide our health. Uh, system, so that we can heal um, in better ways and less expensive ways than we do now. Uh, so, so it's um I think it I think the liberal arts are highly practical and helpful, and I I hope that I can play a small part in starting a couple of things and maybe helping fund a couple of things where we um, start looking at the humanities and the and the liberal arts as something deeply human helpful and, and also delightful, really.
1: This is a point that resonates with me, uh, particularly because I have an undergrad and graduate degree in painting and uh, found myself in design and technology. But dis- despite the, uh, as, as you've described, you know, despite the fact that, that uh, those disciplines sound very uh, separate, I found that humanities and especially the arts uh, taught me a lot about um, thinking in metaphor, um, about um, being uh, okay with uncertainty, and uh, being okay with exploring, um, which is a really important thing. Um, you know, machines can't, can't do that quite as well as we can. Um, and so I found that the hiring process, this is a really important thing for me. I'm looking for these soft skills. And Yes, we can look at resumes and see, you know, you studied French or you studied painting. But to me, there's something beyond that. And I wonder if you could talk about either in your personal experience at Red as you hire uh, new staff um, for the company or as you've consulted with any number of companies around the world, how hiring and critical thinking, how do we screen for critical thinking and find the right people to help us with this?
2: Right. If only I knew. Um, I I think you mentioned some really important things about studying painting, but I think you didn't mention the most important. With for for me at least. I'm, I mean, you're entitled to think about think about painting whatever way you want. But I think when you want to understand let's say Dutch painting in the 1500s, or you want to understand um, American painting in the 70s, uh, you use a skill of putting yourself into, or you train a skill of putting yourself into the world of the painter. What world was he or she living in? What did they want to say, what was ugly, what was not ugly, what was, what, what, what was that world like, what, what was the experience of being alive at that time like. And I think when you, and this is not just painting, also music or, you know, any other art form, gives you the ability to travel to that place and feel what they feel or some of what they feel and experience what they experienced. And I think the great art historians I've met, they can tap into um, that time that the painting is from and, and by, because of that, understand what that was all about. Um, so they can understand Picasso by understanding the 1920s. Um, and they can understand James Turrell by understanding, the I don't know, the 1980s. Um, and, you know, L.A. in the 1980s. So this ability to put yourself into the world of others is something that you train when you study painting. The same, if you listen to, um, you know, Charlie Parker, you can understand what it some of what it was like to be uh, an African-American, highly skilled African-American musician in the jazz clubs of New York in the the 1930s. What was that experience like? So through the music or through the painting, you understand others. And I think that skill of putting yourself into other people's world and trying to understand that world is the same skill you need when you understand users or customers or sales reps or whatever it is you want to understand. It's the ability to put yourself into other people's world and that's not a hard skill. That's a, that's not a soft skill. That's a hard skill. It's highly practical, and what we do is that we try to test that. Um, we try to test their their critical thinking skills, and their um, and their um, ability to put themselves into other worlds and have the emotional and intellectual flexibility to do that is not easy, and is something that comes from engaging with those worlds and i think the most advanced way of doing that is engaging with art it's it's the it's the highest version of what we humans can do and um it's the most advanced way of doing it so i think what you learned from from i don't know but because i don't know you that well but i would imagine that what you learned from studying painting is something you use every single day in trying to understand the people You want to make something for.
3: Christian we want to be respectful of your time so we just had one one last question to wrap up with and um, that is what do you think the role of curiosity is in being a good leader?
1: Hmm. Uh,
2: I don't know I mean all good leaders I've met were curious Uh, but I don't know what the role is you you need as the great leaders I've met were a mix of curious, but also sort of once the curiosity was done, pretty decisive about making things. So it's like, I guess it's this sort of fast and slow idea we talked about in the beginning. You've got to be able to be both fast and slow. Slow when it comes to being curious about your markets, your, the technology changes and so on. And, and, and fast and decisive when it comes to, okay, now we've explored enough, let's make things now. Um, but I, I would say that the great leaders I've met and worked for have all had in common that they were readers, they, were, they read books, and they were um, interested in many, many things, not just cars or carbonated drinks or market shares, but many things and and I, I think there's a, there's sort of a pro- probably a glass ceiling in most companies that below that glass ceiling it's possible to exist without curiosity, but it's not possible above that if you want to rise above a certain level, being curious is a um, is a part of the job because the markets might be changing or and um, the technology or whatever is changing around them, they got to understand that in context. And that's what that's, it's that sort of impulse of curiosity that moves you there.
3: Well, that's a great place to, to end the interview, Christian. We really, truly appreciate you being on our show. It was, it was great to have you.
2: Thank you so much. I enjoyed it.
3: Thank you.